0: Welcome to Philosophy at the Movies, a podcast where we discuss themes in the history of philosophy through the medium of films. I'm Alex Baker, and joining me, as always, Sean Baker. And today's topic is the 1997 film *Starship Troopers*. So this movie takes place in a futuristic society, one could almost say a utopia. Yeah. The, apparently, where there was supposedly after a Cold War or something of it, nuclear attack the world was in shambles and in it came this government run by people who have served in the military. And they basically came in and saved it and they're the ones that kept the government. It's called the Federation and gone are pretty much the idea of countries and local government. It's all under one international system. But it's run by people who have to serve in the military for at least two years. If you don't, you still have rights, but you will not be a full-fledged citizen. You cannot hold public office until you have served your military service. During this time, we follow three people. The main character is Johnny Rico, his friends Carl and Carmen, and they both decide to go into military service straight after graduating high school. And right as this is going on, war has broken out between this alien species of bugs way off on the galaxy because they have they launched an attack on buenos aires killing over a million people and so now we're going over there and trying to wipe them out
1: yeah that's
0: basically and the thing about this movie is even more so than something the closest one i can think of otherwise is way what stanley kubrick did to stephen king's the shining this has got to be the biggest middle finger from a film director to the author of the, of the source material he is basing on. Paul Verhoeven, I can, you can just clearly tell the contempt he has for the book and Robert Heinlein and his ideals in the book because he, is, he even admits in the interviews, this is per, on purpose, he said he had, couldn't finish the book. He read a few chapters, felt the film was glorifying fascism, and he took that idea of fascism and in this movie it is so painfully obvious that he is modeling this government after nazis their regalia all look i mean at the end you have neil patrick harris he looks practically like an ss officer all the propaganda films you see are, are, are reminiscent of lenny riefenstahl's t- triumph of the Will. Mm-hmm. he has con- the book is great but yeah. you can tell Verhoeven does not like it. Yeah,
1: Verhoeven has contempt for that book, definitely. And it's kind of a shame because uh, I think uh, this this does a a, a disservice to the book. The book itself is a great story, and it is set in the future. And it's apparently after a war that had an unusual uh alliances for our days at any rate russia great britain and the united states against what's called the chinese hegemony right and apparently there was some large war there and it was large enough to essentially wipe out the extant governments um, but not entirely their history because we see in the book at least that um the main characters and the uh military establishments that uh, you know they're a part of they still have a pretty darn good grasp on earth history but apparently there was enough of a dissolution of the old order to where this new order had to be put in place and it ended up being put in place uh and the civilization built up out of the ashes of this old one uh, by as you said military veterans and you have what's called this terran federation Mm -hmm. And it's apparently, you know, interplanetary, interstellar, because other planets are involved. And uh, in the book, you see uh, changing alliances. A planet full of people called the Skinnies, right, who are originally with, uh, allied with the Bug Planet, Um, and uh, Klandathu. uh, Klandathu, correct. And 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 they change their alliances and actually end up working with the Terran Federation. yeah, and it, it, the thing about the book is it's it's very interesting in that it does ask us questions about um, um, civil obligations and uh, uh, ethics and um, the history, uh, political science, essentially. Um, and very little of that is in the film. It's, it's, there's not too much of yeah, it. I mean, the, you, you have the... The instructor at high school, everybody has to take a, a history and moral philosophy course in this this world. Hey, that's good for me, you know. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's good for employment. But interestingly, the only people that can teach those courses are people that served in this uh, um, Terran Federation military. And, and the military has a naval unit, which is essentially a space force, right? And it's got uh, uh, the actual terminology that... Um, I think Heinlein came up to, to um, describe the, uh, the uh, mobile infantry. Actually, he, he kind of tongue-in-cheek describes them as um, space marines, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. They're very much like marines and kind of like the army too. And uh, only people that have served in that uh, military are, ta- are able to teach this course. And it is a history course and a uh, political philosophy course. And,
0: but yet you don't have to pass it.
1: Yeah, at least in high school you don't have to. Um, high school, it's required. It's like a, it's a required elective. You're, you're voluntold to do it. Um, and the idea is just to get people thinking about um, um, civic responsibility, I think. And uh, uh, we see later in the book, it's not in the film at all, that once uh, Re- Johnny Rico... Um, uh, decides to go to officer candidate school. He re- he sees, he discovers that a similar course, but at more of a college or graduate level, is required in that uh, setting, and you have to pass it. So it is graded, and it's kind of funny. He describes it as nerve-wrackingly difficult, um, but compelling and interesting nevertheless. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think this is a... Uh, a reflection of um, Heinlein's uh, uh, own history, in case anybody doesn't know, and most people do that go to the Naval Academy. uh, He was a Naval Academy graduate, uh, class of 1929. And then he went into the military about five or six years, got out, and then uh, I'll let you fill in the details because we just looked at this. uh, He he, went back in during World War II
0: world war ii he came back and he went to the shipyard naval shipyard in pennsylvania along with interesting enough two other famous sci-fi authors s brog de camp and isaac asimov and then they one of the things they worked on was they were working on approaches to combat kamikaze attacks yeah so even during the war he continued to serve and since he is an academy graduate, he did, you know, did do service during World War II. You can kind of see that in his beliefs in this in this story, in the story of the book, that you know he believes you have to, you should do military service. In this belief that being a veteran, having served time, you are, you would say, you are more suited for political office than just a regular civilian.
1: Yeah, and, and I do would hasten to point out it's not merely. S- being able to run for political office or hold political office, like to vote too, yes. uh, the, the right to vote is tied, you're right, to this service. And they go in in an open-ended agreement. It's uh, uh, two years minimum. But, I mean, at least in the book, they tell you, you know, depending on what's needed, you you might be required to stay in longer. And you're not allowed to, uh, you don't get the franchise until you actually leave the military. Um, interesting. Uh, and um, that seems to have caused a lot of consternation with some of the critics of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, they're basically worrying, you know, that... It's a military you, like, state. Uh, yeah, this will, of necessity, ca- cause, uh, cause the uh, society, of which is a part, to become very militaristic. And the fascism charge, I think, is silly. I mean, the society in this book isn't, by any stretch of the imagination, like the fascist governments which with, with which we are There's, familiar. Yes, but very- there, you know, it's interesting that the militarism charge is there as well. Uh, I read a few of those comments, and it, it seems to be the case. They think, well, you know, naturally, these guys that were in the military will tend to vote in uh, actions and uh, spending bills and things like that that would profit the military and they'd be ready and eager to go to war all the time I,
0: I doubt that's actually even true Yeah, when you also think of fascism you think of suppression of the people you think of Adolf Hitler putting people in concentration camps, discrimination against certain groups of people whether it's political affiliations or their country of origin or the color of their skin or whatever From what you read about in this book, it seems to almost be a utopia. They talk about how crime is increasingly down, Mm -hmm. overall conflicts within the world itself, since the idea of countries and local areas are almost abolished. There are no wars. The only war you have is with alien species so there's no infighting between the human race anymore yeah
1: and it's not imperialistic i mean it's not like we went out looking for trouble or i should say we you know what i mean earth went in out the movie, looking it's for a trouble different. Yeah. yeah but in the book i mean it's clearly the, the aggression is on the part of the uh, bugs they came and attacked earth uh so um that again i think is a more realistic re- reflection i mean and you're right this the society is not fascistic by any ordinary standards i mean there's freedom of speech
0: yeah even if you don't serve in the military you still have basic human rights you're still protected by law it's just the fact that you can't vote and you can't hold public office
1: yeah but you can you can you can start any business you want you can work in any business you you want and apparently it's a very uh uh well-to-do society by our standards um But what gets people, what gets these critics is this this notion that uh, the franchise, basically being able to take part in the political system, is tied to this uh, previous military service.
0: And I think one of the the scenes they criticize, which even uh, Verhoeven puts word for word practically in the movie, is that beginning with the history and moral philosophy, it's when In the book, his name is Dubois, but in the movie, it's Razdak, who was also the Rough Riders, but that's a different character in the book. Yeah. But he is talking about, because one one of the the girls, she says, well, my mother says violence never solves anything, which she also says in the book. Yes. And he's bringing up instances in history like, well... Violence did solve something. Tell Napoleon about how violence didn't solve anything. Tell the people of, and he don't bring it up in the book, but the movie, he says, tell the people of Hiroshima how violence never solved anything. And uh, I think that's what people don't like is they're saying that they're violent and they're saying violence is an okay use of force. So war is this good and that, you know, don't question it. You should. Yeah, but, you know,
1: again, I don't think they're being entirely fair to the author. It's not that he's saying violence is a solution that you you should uh, resort to first. It's always a last resort. And uh, he doesn't say anything in the book. Uh, although, you know, it, the instructor, I have to say I like the instructor and in what they say, but the, they never say anything quite like that. They're just basically kind of realists and say, look, you know, there are going to be situations where uh, talking, negotiating, uh, wheedling Bribing, whatever, it's just not going to work. There are some people that the exercise of violence is the only way to deal with them. And he had this clearly in mind when he was writing. He was thinking about recent Earth history, for goodness sakes. Uh, what other solution would there have been with Nazi Germany? What other solution would there have been with Imperial Japan? Right? And he was, I also think, uh, worrying about the near future interestingly Mm -hmm. china back in 19 the 50s here he wrote this thing in 57 yes and it was published in 59 i think um a a little far sighted there i mean you know you would think somebody in that time period would be much more worried about soviet russia
0: well Um, um bringing up some of his backstory he um in the 60s once we once the cold war was in full bloom he did bring up it was, they're called the sons of Patrick Henry mm-hmm. and it was basically where he is supporting the use of nuclear weapons. he was
1: Well to be precise, he was he was supporting uh, or not supporting working against the nuclear test ban treaties that were occurring yes, yes, at yes. that time period. Um, which you know by implication is basically saying we need to keep nuclear arsenals primarily for deterrent effect and guess who the other primary nuclear foe would have been Russia, but and he certainly had all that in mind, but what, what I find intriguing is why would, it, it almost seems like he was looking into the 21st century here, and he realized in the longer run, China might be the more significant threat, and I don't know the answer to this, but it, it, I get the impression from the fact that he describes in the book uh, at one point the um uh the insect race they're fighting the bugs right as communistic
0: yeah the idea says you know? the other uh, the ideal yeah. perfect form of communism I right think.
1: they don't they don't consider their individual living units so to speak as individuals they don't have a
0: they it's the queens in the hive they control the soldiers right. and
1: yeah. the soldiers are just basically cannon fodder and they're sent out and he he, he Is he thinking, I don't know the answer to this, is he thinking that Chinese communism is going to be more of a threat and more like that insect threat than perhaps Russian communism? Don't know the answer to that.
0: Maybe it was during the fact in World War II II or even in the war between China and Japan how many Russian soldiers and civilians and Chinese soldiers and civilians died and the willing of the government is like, we got a lot of them.
1: Let's we just keep just throwing just, him, let's keep at them. Yeah. We'll get to them eventually, and that's how the Russians beat the Germans. Exactly, it's because they had overwhelming numbers. Um, so it's interesting that uh, it's kind of a, a metaphor, analogy, whatever you want to say that the insect, this insect uh, civilization, is. I think for communism, right? But that having said that, he, he's he seems to see a more long-term threat in China. And he even says, you know, there was this war between the Russians and the Chinese, uh, uh, and, and us being on the side of the Russians. And, you know, uh, there were frictions between Soviet communism and Chinese communism, even during World War II. Um, and definitely afterwards, um, it's interesting, he's just it shows he's very very attuned to the politics of the day, and I think it's a, a hint that he might he he would have he had seen he saw that longer term threat emanating not from Russia but China. It's intriguing
0: And getting back to the movie, yeah, we've been talking yeah. so much about the book because well, the movie
1: just misses it all it, yeah, it doesn't
0: really one of the things i one of my complaints I had about the movie was. All the actors, the main stars, are way too pretty looking. They look like they're fresh off a set of like a teen, like a Beverly Hills Nine Hundred Two One Zero, and that's why you. It has like that teen drama, you know, subplot with the romance, almost square, if you will, because yeah. Rico's in love with Carmen, but there's this other girl in his class that's that's in love with him. Diz, yeah, Diz. But Carmen's also and has an attraction with the one of her co-pilots. So it, one of the one of the things he says well of. Verhoven says, well, I made them t- to look as pretty as possible because, you know, it almost feels like this movie is sort of like a propaganda film for the mobile infantry. Yeah. These guys, you know, want the glory. They go. They, you know, they have some tough times. But at the end, Rico's now commanding the Roughnecks. Yeah. They've just had a major breakthrough in the war. They've captured the queen. The uh, carl is now studying the psychology because he has the psychic ability he's studying the psychology unit to understand how the queens interact to defeat carmen's now moving up and becoming commanding her own ship yes so she, every it is like almost like a propaganda movie and yeah. he's showing like these you know beautiful 20 somethings who look like they just fresh yeah. out of makeup And the,
1: that's how the movie actually ends yeah. with one of these propaganda pieces that you see throughout the film uh with them as highlighted as how successful and and, and uh, happy they are, actually. And, you know, with the with the cursor, of, do you want to yeah. see more? I,
0: I actually kind yeah. of like that feature in the film. The, you know, with once again, uh, Verhoeven sticking the middle finger to Heinlein, you see the kids wanting to play with the troopers' guns. And they the kids are fighting over, like, this giant rifle. <laughs> yeah. And that gives even the beginning at the when they are doing, I'm doing my part, I'm doing my part, the soldiers, and there's like this 10-year-old kid dressed up like a soldier. He says, me too. Yes, and
1: it's great. And, you know, the thing that was a unintended consequence of his choice of casting and the visuals and the way these people are presented is it underplays, I think, something that's very admirable about the book and Heinlein in general. I guess it's it's a... Common thread throughout his his uh, his books, um, the fact that uh, ethnic and national origin a- has absolutely no bearing on how well you do in in the in this society. We Cause it's, it's not it's it is Johnny a, Rico. It's Juan Rico. It's These Juan all, Rico, yeah. and he is from the Philippines, and his native uh, tongue is Tagalog. And uh, this kind of thing, it's it's it's. It's revealed in dribs and drabs through the book. And uh, I think there's a very positive message there about... Yeah,
0: it's very... Not only just with race, but with gender. Yes. I mean, in the movie, you kind of see that with that co-ed shower scene. Oh, that's which ridiculous. Is ridiculous. And that's just... You know, Verhoeven's the guy that also directed Basic Instinct and Showgirls. So yeah. He's got to... In total recall with yeah. the prostitute with three breasts. So he's yeah. got to throw in his gratuitous nudity every time. Yeah, I know. But... but It is trying to show, and in the book, he even talks about how most of the pilots are women. And the guy's not even like saying women pilots. He's saying, yeah, most women are the better pilots. He's freely able to admit. Exactly
1: right. The women kind of run the big ships, the Navy, right? They tend to be ship captains. And the men time to, uh, tend to be the guys doing the grunt work. Uh, they're the uh, space marines, right? Mm-hmm. But you're right. Everything's integrated uh, racially and, and gender-wise. And I, I think, again, this is a, a testament to Heinlein. Uh, if you think about the Naval Academy itself, uh, women were not introduced until 1976 as midshipmen. Um, and you know, he, he had a foresight enough to see uh, I think, and, and the me- part of the message of this book is when you do something like that, you're basically preventing yourself uh, as a government or as a, a military organization. Of, uh, you're, you're excluding from yourself the potential of 50% of your population. Why would you do something so stupid, right? And the same thing uh, applies to... Uh, ethnic groups, right? Why would you be so stupid not to take, to take advantage of these people? The, the bigger your pool for talent, if you're a meritroc- meritocracy as this uh, society favorite. is, uh, you want, you, you, you got to draw as many people in, from into your initial pool mm-hmm. of candidates as it were. Uh, because you know, by the weeding process, you're not going to have many left. And, uh, hopefully they'll be the highest caliber. So you need the largest pool to begin with as you possibly can get. That's something also he, I think, does a very good job of describing in the book, right? They start off, you know, in boot boot camp with somewhere around 4,000 people and end up with, I think it's 182 yeah. that survived the thing. And that's a meritocracy. And, you know, you get a very effective organization uh, by doing that, and it's just foolishness to only take part of, uh, as it were, from some pools of your population and not others. He does a good job of sending that message.
0: Yeah, and then one thing that he also does, which I thought was interesting, I mean, well, Verhoeven does, is how in the book they talk, he talks about how it's usually the bugs that started the war. But in this movie, Verhoeven makes it absolutely clear that it's the humans that started the war. There was no reason we had to go to Klendathu. For anything, we were the ones that started the war. And there's even that scene when the news anchors casually bring up. It's like, some critics are saying if we should have... We were just live and let live and left them alone, they wouldn't have attacked Buenos Aires. But then Rico says, I'm from... Buenos Aires and I say kill them all Yeah, and there's even like this even thing where after they're torturing the pilot and they're going through his brain he says I can't wait till we wipe your race off the planet so it's even just kind of that yeah. imperialism like we we're going to wipe your race yes. off the planet we're going to take over because it's our right Yeah, and,
1: and again I don't know why Verhoeven
0: did this but it's just simply not in the book it's not in the book. Getting close to the end of my questions here, is there anything else you want to bring up? One thing um getting back to honoring the military service, one thing I noticed in the book, and it's briefly shown like for a second, the movie, mm-hmm. how all the ships are, not, are you know how today ships are mostly named after either famous commanders or like presidents. This one is more about famous soldiers. The main ship is the Roger Young, and even in the book they show Roger Young was a Medal of Honor winner who fought in the Pacific Theater fought with his life in World War II yes that's the main ship they fly but there's also like the USS Normandy Beach. It's a lot of famous yes. battle sites I, which I thought was interesting because I, I could be wrong but we don't necessarily do that where we name it after famous battle sites no but
1: there are there are instances of ships named named after individuals. Um, uh, uh, probably the, the one that really jumps to mind for me is the one named after the Sullivan brothers who all died on the Juno. Um, there is the USS the Sullivans, right? So we do that, and I uh, again I think that's a testament to Heinlein's familiarity with the Navy and the naming the naming protocols that are used with ships. I like that, and I do like uh, just in general. I just like the the fact that he makes us seriously consider um, uh, whether or not to tie. Uh, uh, Citizenship to service, um, it's, we have to remember in the United States until relatively recently, we had a draft. Now, citizenship wasn't tied to service, but everybody was expected to serve. And it's also the case that more recently people have been concerned about a disconnect in terms of popular culture and pop- popular awareness between what, uh, between the military and the civilian sector to where a lot of people really just only have the faintest clue about what the military do. And a lot of people will say a contributory factor to that is the fact that a vast majority of uh, American citizens, citizens have absolutely no experience with the military. They haven't served. And that was one of the benefits of having a draft. Everybody was intimately familiar with it, at least for two years and sometimes four years. And you know what, that idea goes back a long way. I mean, we weren't the first uh, uh, society to draft people. It goes back to at least ancient Greece. Um, Athens, hardly what you would consider a fascist state, um, uh, was one of these city-states. All the Greek city-states had this uh, interesting practice where uh, uh, youths, it was called the Ephibia, where youths would um, be required to serve for a minimum of two years the first year was training kind of like boot camp in the, in the book and then the second year would typically be actually out serving on outposts sometimes in combat and whatever and only after they completed that service were they allowed to vote especially in Athens because they had a you know a uh, direct democracy there. So the idea isn't new.
0: Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy at the Movies. Do you want to know more? You can find this podcast and more podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center by visiting the Radio Stockdale page at usna.edu. This program is hosted by Radio Stockdale. There you can also listen to their podcasts such as Ethics in the Naval Warrior and The do if you like this podcast, you might be interested in my other podcast, Real Sound. For each episode, I dedicate to classic movie soundtracks. That can be found online at the thesoundofcinema.podomatic.com. So until next time, I'm Alex Baker. And I'm Sean Baker. Saying so long, be sure to catch us next time on Philosophy at the Movies.